I think we don't give ourselves the understanding that we're due about why these details actually do strike us as so difficult. Hello and welcome to Fear Itself with me, Cressida Bonus. In this podcast, I'll be asking people from all walks of life about fear to find out what it can teach us about ourselves and the world around us. We'll discover how fear limits them, how it motivates them and how they find the courage to face it head on. But before we begin, I want to tell you about this week's sponsor, Codex Beauty Labs. I don't know about you, but a lot of the time when I'm putting products on my skin, I don't really know how clean the ingredients actually are. Often beauty companies make these bold promises about their ingredients, only to be short on reality. But Codex Beauty Labs, on the other hand, represents what is good in the beauty industry today. What I love about Codex is their transparency and commitment to science. Their pioneering products are composed of clean and meticulously sourced ingredients and have clinically proven skincare benefits. Even more reassuring is that their wonderful founder is an award-winning PhD scientist herself. Simply put, Codex exceeds market expectations in sustainability and cleanliness. Each day, they work towards their mission to blend plant biology and biotech innovation and to create true, long-lasting plant-based biotech beauty. I'm really happy I found these wonderful products and I highly recommend them. They smell absolutely delicious and make your skin feel silky soft. You can find Codex at codexbeauty.com. My guest today is art historian and philosopher John Armstrong. John works closely with Alain de Botton, writing books for the School of Life, a global organization devoted to teaching you how to lead a more fulfilled life. In this episode, John tells us about the battles he's had with sometimes debilitating shyness. He explains how all humans are pretty idiotic and why that's okay. And he shares a surprisingly emotional story about a garden centre. John is the author of a book called Art as Therapy, and through his writing, it's clear to see how he values the power of art. The great writer Leo Tolstoy saw art as a vehicle for empathy, a way of uniting humanity. So I asked John what role empathy plays in unpacking our own fears. Oh, I think it's huge. I mean, I I love Tolstoy, and I think you're so right to stress the the empathy that that he brings. One of the things he's very very good at is empathy in unexpected directions. His kind of biggest novel is um, called Anna Karenina, and uh, the name Anna is the is the wife of this initially rather kind of cold, distant bureaucrat. He's a very senior person in the Russian government in the the mid-19th century. And you're supposed to not really like him. And then at a crucial moment, Tolstoy takes us into his emotional life. And we discover that He's a man who's very easily embarrassed, but he has great depths inside. And Tolstoy allows us to see him at his unexpected moments of tenderness, his 
desire to forgive, to his desire to ask forgiveness. Now, he doesn't necessarily do this very well in his outer life, but Tolstoy shows us the complexity and the depth, and even in some ways the sweetness of this man who doesn't at all seem sympathetic from the outside. He's not the kind of person that our society today says, oh, you should be sympathetic. You should be empathetic to this person. But we understand him through Tolstoy's beautiful imagination and generosity of spirit. We understand this figure much more deeply. And I think that has a huge potential for diminishing our our fears because it's often the people it's often the people that we kind of grudgingly admire or sort of think oh my gosh they're above us they're more powerful they're more successful and we feel intimidated by them and by taking us into the the more tender parts the more troubled parts the more lovely parts of this person's life the secret part I think their power to intimidate us is in a very interesting way kind of reduced. I think the modern way in which we think of empathy is is very generous. We tend to think of empathy as it's the people who you're not at all intimidated by, but you feel sorry for and you should be empathetic to them. And that's a good thing. But our anxieties are about people that we think might look down on us. And really, it's empathy for the people we're afraid of that has a, a, a fascinating, wonderful potential to reduce our fears and to make us more confident. And I completely agree that we do tend to be more fearful and feel more intimidated by the seemingly fearless person, although that's something I don't necessarily believe in, is that anyone can actually be, be fearless. But... I wonder if, as a society, we we favour the extrovert rather than the introvert and the person that comes across as more fearless. And are they able to almost find success more easily than the than the quieter types? I th I think you're so right about that, um, and it's a it's a very fascinating and difficult point the gregarious person, the person who seems so at ease in the outer world and they, they, you know, they want the spotlight of attention on them and they, they don't seem to have any social embarrassment or anxiety and they go into the room and they want to kind of go up and embrace strangers and they, they have a tremendous social advantage. But often the things that are important to us are much quieter. They're hard to be loud about. I sometimes think that what we really need is for people to be more, as it were, assertive, more confident about the more delicate, complicated, embarrassing, awkward things in life. What we've got is a culture in which the person who feels, um, you know, very sure of themselves or seems to be very sure of themselves kind of dominates the scene. And that's 
perhaps inevitable. But it does mean that a lot of the the deeper, quieter, more subtle things don't get the attention that they really deserve. They are they are the things that that actually are important in our lives. So a lot a lot does go missing, and this is this is a kind of the what you might call the kind of the grand tragedy of shyness that that so many really good things get buried away because we don't the people who know about them know them at a certain price they they learn the deeper things in a way that robs them of confidence they they learn about i don't really understand another person they learn oh i've got so many faults of my own they learn every human situation can be understood in multiple ways they learn the deep important things that at the same time rob them of a kind of easy natural confidence of oh, i'm just me i'm great oh, i'll just go on and do my thing it's it, 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 it's such a fascinating paradox i don't think it's the end of the story i think we can ultimately learn to be as well, sensitive and deep and more confident but it's a harder path a more a longer path one might say yeah I mean, in my life, when I see very loud, assertive people in a room, I I tend to envy them because sure. it's, it's not what I, I'm never the loudest person in the room. And I sometimes think, gosh, I wish I was like that person. And I can only uh, the, the times when I feel very confident is when I'm when I'm dancing, I could just dance anywhere very freely or when I'm acting. But actually to be in a group of people and be the one telling the the, the story or it, it's never been me but I do think gosh I'd like to be that person yeah but you said something earlier right at the beginning you said you didn't think that anyone was completely like that and I I, I think you're right I mean one of the interesting things about getting older is you see the longer story of people's lives and so I, I remember quite some time ago, this girl at university who was fantastically confident, or so it seemed. I mean, well, she was a great social performer. And, and there was this lovely little anecdote that seemed to sum her up, that that she was once in a play and, and uh, she called out to the director, spotlight on me. And it seemed like, you know that to me for a long time that seemed like the essence of social confidence but then as the years passed i realized that this person wasn't like that all the way down they were actually much more complex and much less sure of themselves than they appeared to be and that although their their social confidence was a lovely in a sense a lovely thing but it was nothing like the whole story of who this person was. And I, I, I think you're right to suggest that, that, that few people are, as it were, confident all the way down. And that if we realize that, it actually changes our experience of envy and intimidation. And in a way, the envy might work the other way around as well, that they think, oh my goodness, why am I always seeking the limelight why do i crave the attention of others so much why can't i sometimes 
you know, slip into the in, 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 into the background and not feel compelled to domineer. Yeah, it's very interesting, John. I mean, with me, I, it feels I'm a huge contradiction because when I'm on stage, I love an audience. The bigger the audience, the better. But in social situations, I'm not that person, which is a huge, feels like a huge contradiction, but I think there are a lot of shy actors out there and it's one of the reasons why I've, I've loved writing in this time because I can express myself instead of acting which I haven't been able to do in this lockdown period express myself on the page which has been hugely rewarding John also I wanted to talk to you about your fears and you said you were very shy when you were young and I wanted to ask you how that how that manifested itself for you. Uh, yes, I was a, a extremely shy as a child, and and indeed for many years um, through adolescence and into kind of the early maturity. Um, one way was in in shops. So I felt that I I couldn't really go into a shop. I couldn't go into buy a you know fizzy drink, or a, I couldn't sit in a cafe. I couldn't. Uh, I could certainly couldn't buy clothes. In the end, one has to do these things, but it, but it, but it was um, always an experience of of deep embarrassment that um, I was going to be very ridiculous, and that you know if I tried on a pair of trousers, the other people in the shop would be kind of you know they'd be putting their hands over their mouths and laughing and guffawing and pointing and. Um, and feeling just so that I was uh, like the most stupid and most ridiculous person they'd ever seen. I felt that uh, that people would have a very, very negative opinion of me in very ordinary public places. I mean, it's a, it's a, gosh, I mean, saying it now, it feels like so sad, really. I mean, I was quite a, you know, a reasonably well-functioning person on the surface. And so I would just put up with these things and, and do them. And probably um, someone looking on would have thought I was okay. But I was basically very nervous around other people. And also, I think I didn't properly grasp how fundamentally generous most human beings actually are, that we're not on the lookout for reasons to hate other people. We're not desperately trying to find what is awful about others. And <laughs> I realise in retrospect what the problem actually was, which is that I was a very critical person. I was actually surprisingly hostile to other people for a whole host of reasons that perhaps require a lot of sympathy, but we're, they're suddenly there. And I was pretty judgmental. And it was actually my judgmental attitude that I was projecting into these other people. I would look around this street and think, oh, gosh, don't much like the look of that person, or gosh, don't think they're very impressive. Oh, who's that person? What are they doing? I wasn't very nice to other people. I mean, I, I didn't say any of these things, but I wasn't very nice in my thoughts and feelings. I was quite, quite judgmental. 
And so I imagined other people doing that back to me. I sort of got a bit of the bit of my own my own medicine being being you know applied back to me and so i think i think that there can be quite very sort of private reasons why we think others are going to be critical of us um that can come from quite unexpected places and, and, and particularly from our own capacity for criticism of others so fear can be in some way a kind of form of mismanaged aggression. Mm, yeah, that's a very good way of putting it. Yeah, I would say. I think that deep down, you know, we we, we can owe ourselves a, 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 a you know a fair dose of of sympathy. I mean, it sounds horrible to say, "Oh, I was judgmental." Oh, I used to sort of look at people quite critically, and so on. I think that was a an undeveloped, a kind of immature attempt to work out what I really cared about. As I was growing up, I was the second of four children. I had an elder sister who seemed kind of amazingly competent and fantastic. She was like two years older than me and was always much better at everything. And then I had a younger brother, two years younger. And I sort of needed him to be much worse at everything (laughs) than me. I needed him. Oh God, I feel so sorry saying it now. I mean, he's, I love him so much now, but I was absolutely horrible to him for a long time. And I think that it was a kind of internal battle trying to say, in order to be an okay person, I have to be better than someone. The experience, you know, as a child of being much less competent than my sister and then I needed to have other people someone else that I could be better than and uh, my brother was the target but I think that that impulse to say oh I can only be okay if I'm better than someone else that that continued that had a long long afterlife and it was only very slowly that I started to you know, be less interested in judging whether I was better at something or worse than something than other people. So I have, I'm one of 10 siblings. And so this really resonates with me because um, they're all very successful in their own way. Most of them are artists and they're all doing very well. And I'm the youngest. Uh, So when you were saying that, I I really understand that. And I was wondering for you, when was the, you said it was a sort of slow progression of kind of realization. Was there a certain moment where you had a sort of epiphany, if you like? Well, I, I can't really identify a specific moment. There are quite a number of of kind of positive experiences of realizing that I really liked people who, as well, my younger self would have dismissed. I I would say that friendship was very important, particularly the friendship that, let me tell you a specific, it was a specific moment. So you mentioned my, 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 my friend Alan and, um, I remember having lunch with him. I would have been in my mid-twenties. 
he started telling me sort of things that he was embarrassed about or that he felt awkward about and a sense of being able to to share a feeling of kind of like one's secret failings was was very liberating it meant that it was kind of it's okay to be a bit useless in quite a lot of ways. And I think that sort of started to take the pressure off being judgmental. Then there was also becoming friends with people who didn't fit my original template of what a good person is supposed to be. I'm embarrassed to go into, into great detail here, although <laughs> it, it's a, a pathetically sort of UK-based story, and everyone in Australia would laugh at me, I mean, just mock me for this. But but there's a kind of, I mean, I grew up in a quite a rigidly stratified kind of class-based vision of the world in which, you know, there were people that you could not be friends with because they were of a different group, either higher or lower. You could really only be friends with people in the same little bit of the world that you imagined you belonged to. And so you'd be so quite frightened of people on either side. And becoming friends with people, so both in that kind of hierarchical system, both above and below, is very liberating. Uh, well, it was for me, the realisation that that your identity isn't bound up in, in this way at all. I mean, it sounds, it, it sounds so shameful. I mean, we tell ourselves that that we live in a classless society, that that uh, we shouldn't care about these things, and those are completely, you know, that's great, absolutely, that's wonderful. But the but the secret truth is that one can be very um, rigid and carry all kinds of imaginary fears about what other people are going to be like, and and that can be enormously inhibiting. And and what makes it worse is because you think you're not supposed to have that problem, you sort of can't even recognize that you have it. Yes. And so I suppose that this fear really does come from us and not from the outside. And I was wondering how we can learn to reframe fear in that way. Yes. Well, I mean, I, I, I think a lot of it is about adjusting our picture of other people, getting more accurate, more realistic in our, our view of other people that other people are less interested in what we're doing than we imagine, that they're on the whole much less critical, but also that they have their problems too. That what we take to be the strangeness of ourselves is often just the normal lot of humanity. Um, it's not publicly presented, so we don't realise this, but the inner strangeness that, uh, that I think often leads people to feel shy, the inner strangeness is, um, is very much just what it is to be human. And I think that if, 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 we, if we adjust our picture of what other people are like, it changes our sense of who we are and makes us less kind of anxious about how we're going to be judged. Yes. And that we all are imperfect. And when you were saying before that oh, we're... Especially me. I'm more imperfect. <laughs> but when you were saying earlier to actually share those imperfections with a friend, 
how freeing that is. And I completely agree with that. As soon as I ring my best friend and say, oh, I just uh, really messed up today. <laughs> I really messed it up and I you know, say a flaw that I just feel like, oh, that felt great. That felt great <laughs> because I'm not yeah. perfect. Yes. Your book on, well, the school of life under the umbrella of the school of life, the book on confidence. It talks a, a lot about the difference between success and failure and that it hangs on a on a concept that our standard education system never really touches on this, you know, confidence and that actually confidence is a skill based on ideas about our place in the world, which is really interesting. Yeah. One of the, one of the ideas I like very much around that was um, the fear of being an idiot. So uh, quite often in social situations we worry oh my goodness i'm going to make you know i'm going to come across as an idiot i'm going to be shown up as an idiot if i say the wrong thing or if i do the wrong thing and uh quite an interesting move here is to say well what's so bad about that after all one is an idiot i mean perhaps not for exactly the reasons other people might think but but it's basically true so we developed this this idea of, um, of 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 the inner idiot that one should just embrace and accept that to be human is to be pretty idiotic, and if you accept that that's a normal part of being human, then all your other achievements are just kind of added on. They're not an attempt to say I'm not an idiot, but rather I'm an idiot and oh, I'm actually quite good at this. Oh, and actually, I managed to do that okay. And so the thought is, is I go to a party and I'm worried people might think I'm an idiot. It's going to like, um, I'm going to a party and people might think I'm human. <laughs> um, of course they're going to, I mean, there is no option. And I think that this, this idea that, uh, that, that there's an important, that confidence can be built on the truth you're not just telling yourself a story. It's the truth. Of course, you're a bit of an idiot already. And everyone who's intelligent knows that must be true. They don't know the details, but they know it must be true because it's a universal truth. And also, you know that about them. And this, this truth gives us greater generosity towards ourselves, but also takes away the intimidating edge of others. When you were saying that, I was thinking about the physician Gabor Mate, and he once said, don't be afraid of your own truth. But when you were saying that, I thought our truth is that we have so many flaws. And if we're able to come to terms with them and accept them, we'd feel freer to live the way we want to live. Yes, because I think it's no longer stunning news about us that we have our flaws. It's important to, to recognize, but it stops being, oh, that's the really decisive thing about me. It's just the normal baggage of being a human being. And so one doesn't have to sort of keep on apologizing and feeling guilty and shamed and useless and da da da, and all the things that are often so horribly familiar, because that's, that's really very normal and very, just the common lot. And you 
said before that you were, when you were younger, you just speaking about feeling like an idiot. You felt sometimes like an idiot walking in shops and because of your shyness, asking people questions. And about five years ago, you conquered this fear, didn't you? Yeah, yeah. Well, there were, it was a it, that that was a sort of epiphany moment. It's so late on into life. I mean, this is this this was aged round about the age of fifty, and um, I got myself into a terrible state. <laughs> there were some persistent weeds in the garden on the patio, and I wanted to use weed killer to get rid of them. And I knew I could get weed killer at the shop, but I was suddenly. I was kind of putting it off. I think, oh, I'll go next week. Oh, I can't be bothered going to. Oh, I, and I went, why am I not going to the shop? And I realized it was because I felt that the kind of person working in the shop would feel hostile to me. I would come in and say, I need some weed killer. And they'd go, oh, yes, uh, for weeds. And uh, and I would say, um, well, I I I, I don't know because I, I, I didn't know anything. I didn't know what you do. What was it? And that they would think they would think I was a very strange person, a very idiotic. That you were supposed to already know. You were supposed to go in and say, oh, mate, I need this kind of brand, and uh, and I didn't have any of that. I was just a total outsider in this little environment. And that they would get angry with me. That they would. Uh, they think I was wearing the wrong clothes. They, uh, they, they I was wearing the would be wearing the wrong shoes, not gardening shoes. I didn't know what I would be doing wrong. I'd be doing everything wrong, and I wouldn't know what it was. And um, of course, that was slightly mad. And eventually, with the help of a friend, I made myself go to the garden shop, and I just said, "I don't know what I'm looking for. Could you help me?" And this guy, who was my kind of nightmare, this kind of very burly Australian man, that's very, oh, let me help you. What? Oh, I think I know what you might need. And was kind of really sweet and friendly and nice. And um, and I realised how much my imagination was in overdrive in a, such an unhelpful way. And it was a sufficiently kind of dramatic moment. I mean, it sounds so, so useless. Imagine getting to 50 and still getting that wrong. But anyway, there it was. So now I love going to the gardening shop. I'm very happy to be me there. And so um, so that was one of the small, the small triumphs in an otherwise ridiculous life. I love going to the garden centre. It's uh, I suddenly feel incredibly middle-aged because it brings me so much happiness <laughs> going there on a Saturday and sometimes not buying anything, just just looking at the plants. Um, middle age, middle age is the prime <laughs> of life. And I mean, it, and it might seem like a small step what you did there, but I wonder if we can all benefit from placing more emphasis on those on those little victories in life, whether that's sending a an email that we've been dreading or a meeting or something. Yeah, I think I think that's true. I think that's true that we don't we don't allow those tiny things to be the victories that they really are. In the scheme of life it seems like absolutely nothing. How could you have that problem? And yet we really do. 
we really do suffer from these things. We we can't bear to contact this person who we know would love to speak to us, or we can't bear to uh, mention something to someone, even though it would actually be fine. And so we, I think we don't give ourselves the understanding that we're due about why these details actually do strike us as so difficult. And on the surface, it seems you are such a, that seems so pathetic. And yet it's not. I think when we look into them, we can understand that there are really very plausible, very sympathetic reasons why we have these difficulties. We do want to get over them, but it's not that weird that we have them. Mm. I'm really pleased you said that, John, because I think for so many, especially when we're talking about fear, the, the tiny fears, like the ones you've been talking about, feel almost in a way very shameful because they're, they're not these enormous, you know, fears that, that would maybe be more kind of accepted. Whereas these tiny little, tiny little fears, perhaps people don't want to express because there's kind of guilt around feeling, feeling that pain for something that's so tiny. I was wondering also about the school of life, because I think that always touches on those, those small moments as well. And I wondered how how can that help us identify and tackle fear, just looking at the school of life and the work you do with Alan? One of the things about confidence is, is a feeling that it's not well distributed in our world. There's a, there's a wonderful line from the poet uh, W.B. Yeats. He says, um, the worst are full of passionate intensity and the best lack all conviction. He was writing about a specific historical moment. He was writing about the 1930s. And what he meant was that people with crude and violent and, and hostile views of the world felt um, very sure of themselves. And the people who were more sophisticated, more serious, more cautious, and so on, were filled with self-doubt. That is, they would wonder, do I dare to say this? Am I right? What if I'm wrong? Uh, what if people disagree with me? Who am I to say? How would I know? And the, as well, the thuggish, brutish person doesn't care about any of that. And they just go, whoa, they just go right ahead and do whatever they want. And I'm very fascinated by this problem, this, we call a kind of cultural problem, that assertiveness is often linked to kind of lack of subtlety, lack of self-knowledge, lack of sophistication, lack of depth. And yet, we've kind of, in a way, we've often taught ourselves to be I could say less confident than we deserve to be. We, we, you know, the sort of person who's so worried. Um, what if I, what if I offend someone? What if I say something that someone doesn't like? What if I, what if I slightly rock the boat? What if I, what if I'm wrong? This is the kind of person whose voice, you know, often in many ways should be much louder in our world. They may have wonderful things to say, but they trap themselves 
in a in a kind of whole set of oh but 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 what if i'm wrong what if I... whereas people who are totally wrong who as it were ma madly wrong just shout you know from the rooftops and and i i i sense that a certain kind of it's almost like a kind of tension in civilization that that often people who've got the the nicest, most helpful, most interesting things to say have also taught themselves to be super cautious about being assertive. So, John, your book, Art as Therapy, which I'm loving, how can we use art to help us when we're afraid? What works of art are doing is endorsing the parts of ourselves that we don't feel secure about and that don't get much endorsement normally. So imagine, this would be my experience, you know, I'm growing up in Glasgow and I'm, I'm, I'm very fond of certain kinds of buildings and the sunlight filtering through the trees and the view of distant mountains and so on. But I would never know whether anyone else felt this or cared about this because the news is filled with football results and that's what boys at school talk about and and how you did in your physics exam. And so you don't, these parts of you that might be sort of quite important, quite delicate, or you feel very fond, you know, you think, oh, it's lovely when my mother sings to me at night or, or, or lots of things that are important to you don't feel incredibly private and, and you don't know if anyone else shares these things or not. And I think what works of art often do, some of the best works of art, is they give prestige and recognition to what are actually very private experiences. So 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 a great painter will sort of just show, oh, you know, the sunlight was on the path in a particular way. And I think that is so wonderful. I'm going to paint a picture about it. And it's going to be such a great picture that it will be in a great gallery and it will be loved for hundreds of years. And it's just sunlight on a path. Or it's just the tree looked rather nice when you saw, you know, the branches and a bit of the mountain behind. Or I looked at that person's face and I was intrigued by the expression in their eyes and a sense of oh, wistful melancholy in their face. And that is so important, I'm going to paint a picture about it. And that is such a big experience that it's going to be on the wall of a major gallery and it will be famous forever. And that these things are so unlike what is normally given prestige and con concentrated attention and public recognition in our society. I think it gives us a much better sense of what the important parts, what the valuable and worthwhile parts of ourselves might be. I'd love to come on to the quick fire questions. Do you have any phobias or weird fears? Um, I'm afraid of heights, very afraid of heights. I also have a phobia about bananas and about buttons, which I now heights I, I'm, I'm not able to deal with bananas I can I can look at a banana I mean I know it's ridiculous and buttons is just it's such a strange thing um I find them utterly disgusting I know I mean I just have to you know have to wear 
things with buttons and all the time. And I, at some level, I, uh, my sister swallowed a button when she was about six and it passed right through her. And I think she proudly displayed where it had ended up. And so it, uh, it just seems to me like the most disgusting thing that can be. I mean, that's an exaggeration, but it seems very disgusting. And so I recoil from the idea. It's always the idea that the button is going to be swallowed. That somehow, uh, if if um, if I come across a button that's fallen on the floor, I will somehow it will somehow by mistake end up in my mouth, and I will swallow it. Um, it's why are our brains like this? I do not know. And what's the moment in your life that changed you forever? Oh, it was probably it was probably kissing my first girlfriend. It's not that that relationship lasted, but it was, I mean, it was a very nice relationship for a while. It was the realization that I could get, that I could get really close to someone and that that could be a fantastic adventure. And that it was someone who I didn't think would be interested in me. And, uh, and in fact, it was sort of lovely. It lasted for, I don't know, two and a bit years. And, uh, it was kind of like a huge exploration. The world suddenly became so much larger. She came from a very different a bit of the world from me. And it was like, it was a bit like moving countries. It was a bit like kind of discovering a new continent. It was thrilling. And, uh, and so I think that, I, I think it, it, it made me feel the world was much, much bigger than I had imagined. The beautiful answer. Who inspires you the most? Uh, I think I have to say Alain de Botton is my, is my hero, <laughs> I, really. I was hoping you would say that. <laughs> I was hoping you'd no, say He that. really is. I think he's, I mean, it's not just that he's in, he is very, very insightful and clever, but he's also, at an intimate level, an exceptionally, an exceptionally sort of warm-hearted human being. He's very, he's a very, very lovely friend he's not just it's not just that he's extremely clever and, and which he is and 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 creative and so on but he's a there's a kind of great intimacy and warmth in him and what is the book in your life that has given you courage this is an odd thing it's going to sound very very strange um well one of the first books i liked was a book by enid blyton and this would be like 50 years ago it's terrifying I'm not sure it gave me you know, confidence in all areas, not obviously not at all, but it made me interested in writing. It was the first book that I read on my own. I think that's the reason. And it was quite long. I mean, I'd read little, little sort of picture books of five pages, 10 pages, that sort of thing. This was a proper long story. It was 190 pages or something. And it was so long that when I was halfway through, I could hardly remember how it began. And I couldn't imagine how it was going to end. And I felt so proud of myself for being able to read this and very interested in how the story was developing. I didn't kind of realize at the time, but I think, I think that I was I was reading it as someone who was interested in writing, in how books are written, why books have the fascination they do, why a story works or doesn't work. And I think that, you know, I'm not saying it's a great novel or a great little story, it's, but for me it was important. Um, 
It was called The Three Bad Somethings, but I don't remember exactly what it was. Uh, and there was a character in it called Princess Petronelle. It was three little characters who were goblins or dwarves or something, and they were exiled from Happy Town or wherever it was, and they had to go on a long, long adventure to rescue someone. And uh, anyway, they had met with many, many, many different adventures. And what is something that has improved your life? This could be a habit or a routine. One of the things I'm quite proud of is reading in the bath, <laughs> uh, which I absolutely love doing. And um, I discovered that um, I kind of stopped reading, you know, for years and years. I mean, I had a very studious education and I read lots of books. And then, and then I discovered that I sort of didn't really read, apart from work, I didn't really read anything. I would just sort of watch films and see friends and so on. And so a, a, a while back, I started um, having this ritual of, of reading in the bath. And uh, it's been very, very nice. And what would you do, John, if you were not afraid? Well, do you know, it's, it's quite hard to answer that because it's hard to answer it honestly. Because the things that one's afraid of you know, other, other, they're sort of secret. The braver version of oneself is 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 the thing that it's 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 the, <laughs> you know, it's the things I'm not courageous enough to tell you. <laughs> if I were more courageous, I could tell you. If I were less afraid, I think I think. Look, to be honest, there are two things. One is I think that. I would find it easier to tell my children, you know, what they mean to me. I mean, they're, they're because they're older now, it's not, it, it, then it, it's not like they're little children and they just listen. It's, I suppose I'm, I'm, I'm frightened that they don't really understand me and that I don't have the, the confidence to explain myself in a way that they would understand. I mean, there's, there's incredibly intimate personal dynamics there. It's, uh, but if I, if I were more confident, I think that I would, I would get closer really to them. And um, I think I would be a nicer person to be in a relationship with. I think that lack of confidence makes me defensive. And uh, if I were more robust in myself, I wouldn't get so irritated or awkward in, in kind of certain relationship situations. Yeah, I mean, they're not very nice things to admit, but um, I mean, that's what I think confidence would, would bring. Yeah. Thank you, John, for your, your beautiful honesty. And thank you so much for coming on Fear Itself. This honestly has been so, so interesting and insightful. Oh. Thank you. Oh, well, it's, um, it's very nice for me to be, to be involved. Thank you very much indeed. And it's, it's a great pleasure talking to you. Thanks to John Armstrong for joining me on the podcast. Next week, I'll be speaking to best-selling children's author, Scott Stewart. Keep up to date by liking, reviewing, and subscribing to Fear Itself on your favorite podcast app. I always love to hear from my listeners. Let me know what you think about the show, if you've been inspired by any of the conversations, or simply just get in touch to tell me a bit about you. You can find me on Instagram. You've been listening to Fear Itself, presented by me, Cresta Bonus. 
This podcast was produced by One Fine Play. Executive producer is James Bishop. Editorial producer and editor is Oli Giyu. Additional creative support from Selena Christophidis, Louise Berry, Jessica Williams, Emily Weller and Connor Foley. With music by Malt Martin. Thanks for listening. <laughs>